This podcast is made possible in part by the Low Country's Indigo Books, supporting public radio and independent thinking. Ordering and more is available at 843-768-2255. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me from Soundworks Studio in Mobile, Alabama, is author Roy Hoffman, and we'll be talking about Roy's latest book, The Promise of the Pelican, a novel. Roy Hoffman, dear friend, welcome back to the journal. Thank you so much, my dear friend. This book is a little bit different from your your previous ones, although you do have uh, a greater mobile setting. Uh, Fairhope, Alabama, right across the, the bay, as we used to say, over the bay, <laughs> which is a, a local phrase. But, but this is a well, – I'm going to start with your publisher. You've, you've had a number of different publishers, but this time you're publishing with a publisher that specializes in crime novels. Was that a deliberate choice? Well, um, the publisher specializes in sort of literary works and has a very old backlist of, of uh, writers from over the years. And then they were bought out by uh, a bigger New York publisher – and um, they have one line called crime, or that's crime devoted, which is part of the arcade list, and they call it crime-wise. My agent in New York, Joel Del Borgo, who's a friend that I've been working with for some years, loved this manuscript and was shopping it around. And an editor there was really taken with it, and we thought she was going to be moving on it, which she did, to acquire it. And then somehow or another in their conversation— they hit on this idea that they could also sort of put it under the rubric of a crime as well. But I had not written it in that way. I had written it as a character-driven but largely – but with a stronger plot than some of my earlier works. Uh, but it does begin with a crime and it ends with trial. And uh, a couple of writer friends of mine, uh, some who had written more uh, deeply in the crime or the mystery genre area, said to me, you know, this could go in a crime category. I said, well, I really write genre fiction. And uh, it was impressed upon me that it is a very big tent and that um, you could call it a literary crime novel. You could call it a, a southern Jewish suspense novel, whatever you wanted to call it. But when Joel said to me they want to put it in that line, I said, great, why not? And what I have found is that in addition to the people who already know my work uh, and its sort of Southern and Jewish readers and literary readers and such, that it's picking up additional readers who sort of come at literature uh, in that way. But I certainly didn't think of it in that way to start with. Well, I mentioned that it is set pretty much in in Fairhope, Alabama. And Mm -hmm. for folks who don't know that part of the world, let's briefly talk about what makes Fairhope special, other other than it's got the most expensive real estate in the state of Alabama right now. (laughs) Well, you know, the city of Mobile, which is the big metropolitan area, what, 300, 350,000 people, um, is right there at the kind of, you know, mouth of the Mobile River and opens up into Mobile Bay. And across the bay, as you said, now called the Eastern Shore, is the area of Spanish Fort and Daphne and then Fairhope. Historically, founded as a single-tax colony by the Fairhopers coming down from Iowa in the 1890s looking for a beautiful piece of property that they could share collectively in a certain kind of way based on the utopian principles of Henry George. This is sort of the deep history of Fairhope. But what they wisely did was not only find a very beautiful piece of large property along the bay, but there were certain kinds of restrictions to uh, the building, even when parts of it were deeded over to the city of Fairhope. But there's still a single tax colony that is involved in management as well, which is its own sort of story, uh, far more complicated than we can get into now. But um, they made sure that there wasn't a lot of heavy development right along the coast. So instead of 
the experience you have when you go down to Gulf Shores or Orange Beach or way down to Panama City and so on, where you've got big condos and high-rises and such. There's some really beautiful public places, uh, walking paths and such, right along Mobile Bay, which is gorgeous and it's moody and it's, um, you know, changeable, which opens up into the Gulf of Mexico. So at the heart of Fairhope, walking down from the main street, there are only about three main blocks or so, with a great little bookstore, page and palette, some wonderful art galleries, some good restaurants and so on, is Fairhope Pier, which is a public pier, goes about a third of a mile way out into the bay, and it is the community crossroads. It is, to my mind, the closest to a Zocalo that you'd find in uh, Mexico or Piazza in, um, in, in Italy and so on, uh, in these American cities and villages where there's not much public space outside of a town square that maybe people frequent, we have this public uh, promenade. And it has walkers. We walk there often. Uh, there are the early morning walkers. There's you know the 5 a.m. fishermen and 6 a.m. fishermen who go out and all have their specialties. They're the late-night sitters who just want to sit and talk. Um, and um, it's always open, and it's always free, and it's always frequented in some kind of a way. So my main character, Hank, who who's begins the novel, he's 82 years old, a retired criminal defense attorney, like so many of the elders right around there, really just wants to go to the pier and fish. He throws a mullet net or a cast net you know, uh, as it's sort of more generically known, and knows all the other ones. So, And that's kind of the fair hope, you know, for me. And and they've been doing that for a long time because having spent summers in fair hope when I was like five and six and seven years old, mm-hmm. yes, the people were uh, casting their mullet nets back then, <laughs> but there, there also used to be uh, an outdoor theater. Yes, Right next to the pier, you sat on a wooden bench. It was like going to a drive-in, but it was uh-huh. it was right there. Well, when right my there. dad was a boy, and your dad was a boy, and we 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 were both blessed with one only wonderful but very aged dads. My dad in his late nineties, and your dad a centenarian, right? One hundred and one was it? Six uh, weeks six week shy of one hundred and one. Six weeks shy of one hundred and one. My dad practicing law till his ninety seventh birthday. Uh, you know, they told stories before it was as easy to come across the bay, uh, before what's known as the causeway was there, and then later the bayway, which is a part of Interstate 10 going east to west or west to east, you know, and in, in, in towards Pensacola, they would take the bay boats um, over and dock at some of the piers, one of them being Fairhope Pier or some early uh, image of it. And there was a place you're right called the casino, not the gambling kind, but a kind of a big pavilion, right? And there was a theater and there was there were slides and it was, you know, the recreation. But we would go over to over the bay in the summer for a month or so. And um, I just, as you know, Walter, having grown up in this area, um, I've traveled the world. I've written nonfiction and pieces from about everywhere from India to China, to South America, and of course a great deal about the U.S. and the American South and the Gulf Coast. But when I sit down imaginatively to write, uh, and it's true of my four novels, and it's true of personal essays often, my internal compass goes to the Gulf Coast. It goes to Mobile Bay, you know, the heat and the rain and the birds and the vegetation uh, and the culture, it is a 51st state in a way, right along the coast, you know. Those of us who grew up on the Gulf Coast uh, like to quote the late novelist Eugene Walter when he said, Mobile is Sweet Lunacy's county seat, uh, implying <laughs> that crazy things go on in, in that part of the world all the time. And yeah. that's still going on. And not quite in your novel. You don't, you don't get to that, but uh, Fairhope is important. But you, you're really dealing with three different worlds in, in your novel. You've got Fairhope, yes. where the main thing, the main plot plays out. But you also have a flashback to the Netherlands under Nazi occupation. 
mm-hmm. and you also have a flash or a connection to Honduras in Central America and all of the issues there about trying to survive and how some yeah. folks ended up in Fairhope, Alabama. Yes, yes. Well, Hank, the old lawyer in my story, was born in Amsterdam, family Jewish, in 1938, and was a little boy when the Nazis occupied it and then when the deportations began to take place. And uh, on trips there, uh, Nancy, my wife, and I have um, walked those streets of the old Jewish section and gone to the old deportation center, as as one can, sadly, in almost all of the European capitals and and elsewhere, uh, you know, throughout Europe, Central Europe, and that kind of thing. And um, I'd actually started working on this sort of story, but wasn't sure about Hank's background. And um, I, I've always been attuned to stories of people who are displaced, immigrants, refugees, but really rooted in uh, the home that I grew up in as the child of Eastern European Jewish immigrants who ended up in the Deep South and, in fact, Mobile, Alabama. And so, um, but Hank, as a little boy, is rescued and goes into the Dutch underground while his family is ultimately perishes in the camp. So that becomes part of the backstory. Brought to the United States, adopted uh, through a uh, Jewish you know, adoption service by a family in Alabama, in Selma, Alabama, and then grows up there. But he was at five or six when he comes here, just, just at that age where he could still have these impressions, these memories that were so vivid, and yet still young enough to learn a new language and to adopt a new culture. So that becomes part of this backstory, and also the story of his daughter, who's born and raised here, who has, as far as he's concerned, all of the um, opportunities and all of the privileges of a young American growing up, in, and she's in her 30s in this novel. He's older. He was an older dad, and he's lost his wife and, and, and his daughter's mom. And so when she has her own journey of difficulty uh, dealing with drug uh, rehabilitation and alcohol abuse, gets into Mardi Gras partying and wharf parties and that kind of stuff, overdoes it, she's also a lawyer. He has no understanding of that because as far as he's concerned, we survived. You know, We're here. We're the future. And she feels you know, the incredible weight of— uh, my grandparents, my 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 forebears, all died in the camps, and everything is on me to make good. And in a way, I need to live my own life. So there's that element. Roy, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with novelist Roy Hoffman about his latest work, The Promise of the Pelican, a novel. Okay, Roy, we need to talk a minute about how Hank ended up in Selma, Alabama. Listeners and readers might want to wonder how a Jewish child ends up in a small southern town, but that is a part of the history of the Jewish population in the South. Yes. There was a Jewish community in Selma, Alabama. Yes, there was a Jewish community in Selma, Alabama. I grew up in the Jewish community in Mobile, Alabama. Even today, we're a state of four million people. Maybe there, I don't, I don't know, 9,000, 10,000 Jews altogether, mostly Birmingham, Huntsville, you know, Mobile, Montgomery. There were temples uh, in much smaller towns like Selma, and now through people, the next generation moving to Atlanta or far away or assimilating, um, you can find um, the, the whispers of and the remnants of the Jewish communities. You see it in some of the Jewish cemeteries. You see it in some of the beautiful temples that are still extant. But when Hank was brought here, there would have been a small but vibrant Jewish community in Selma, and uh, they were the children or the grandchildren of uh, the people who had pushed out from New York or perhaps had come in through Galveston or uh, had found their way uh, beyond the big metropolitan areas. And it's always been a preoccupation for me because— my grandparents on my father's side were Romanian. They met and married as immigrants in New York. They ended up in Alabama just 
quickly to tell the story, which is that my grandfather, my grandmother, wanted a smaller place to live, someplace warmer. Uh, he had very little formal education, my grandfather Hoffman. He left my grandmother and firstborn in New York for a brief period of time, went out to find a new place for them to live, got as far as we think Richmond or Baltimore, had so much money in his pocket for travel, goes to the train conductor and his broken English as I don't ticket small town good for family, hot, you know. He, he didn't like the cold weather. The conductor counted out $6.52 and said, well, that'll take you to Mobile, Alabama. Next train leaves in 20 minutes. And so his story, and he comes to Mobile and then calls for my grandmother, and then his store, Hoffman Furniture, is still on Dolphin Street, which is the main mercantile block in downtown Mobile, now in its third or fourth generation. But there were stories about people who ended up here out of design because they had family members, right? So then other family members come. But there was already a reform congregation of Jews from Germany or Alsace or uh, other parts of Europe, uh, some Jews who'd even fought in the Civil War, right? And then there were the newer Eastern European Jews like my grandfather in with their schmata shops, with their little rag uh, shops, as they used to call them, which was he ultimately ended up in furniture. But at first it was dry cleaning, pressing, and they would sell a few of the clothes uh, that, that people no longer wanted. And then they founded a synagogue. And um, so there is very much uh, a Jewish life in the South, and there has been. And that's what Hank, my fictional character, came into because he's adopted by a pediatrician and his wife and Selma, unable to have children, and put the word out through something like the Workman Circle or one of the maybe the, the Jewish organizations who would have contacted uh, maybe one of the Jewish doctors uh, who knew somebody down here looking for a child. And that's where he ended up. And um, that's the story. And in all four of my novels, my background as both a Southerner and as a Jew, has oriented me in an important way to the global sensibility in Alabama and South Carolina, Georgia, all of these Southern towns, right? And also, I lived in New York City for 20 years before coming back here. <laughs> and there, where background and ethnicity and nationality, it's like so immediate, it's so present everywhere, attuned me to that in a very big way, so that when Nancy and I moved back here many years ago, it became sort of my, my paradigm. So it's kind of like one of the deep sensibilities beneath this novel and other things that I have written. I, I wanted to get into that because the story of the Jewish community in Selma is the story of the Jewish community in Camden, South Carolina, and in Sumter, South Carolina, and other small towns. Wow. In fact, Sumter at one time in the early 20th century had two Jewish temples. Wow, wow. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. um, and now the community is very, very small. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a story that is, is, as you say, was played out across the South, and that's what, that's what I wanted to, to bring in. Yes, so, yes. You, you mentioned Julio, and of course he is an important part of the story, but now we are bringing in Honduras. <laughs> well, Julio is in his 20s. He works on the grounds crew of a big resort hotel, the fictional Bay Resort and Golf Course. He is from Honduras, uh, dealt with the gangs, uh, dealt with the, the poverty uh, also had been displaced in his way by the devastation of Hurricane Mitch that in 1998 not just, you know, wrecked Honduras but killed like 10, 11,000 people and uh, set that country back uh, dramatically. And the reason that Julio became a character for me was that when I was an undergraduate at Tulane many years ago, I had a housemate lived downstairs, he and his wife, who Rodolfo, who was from Honduras, and went to visit him uh, that summer after I graduated, and we've kept up over the years. And um, it was many years later that when I was working at the Mobile Press Register, an editor of mine said, you know, I know you speak Spanish, you know, pretty good and have spent time in Central America. Uh, we have a real interest here in hurricanes and in the, the, the Gulf Basin and 
you know, this history between Mobile and Central America and the banana trade, of course. Why don't you go down to Honduras to report on Hurricane Mitch? It's been like a year later. And so I took him up on it, flew down there, and I began to understand and appreciate just what kind of impact uh, this hurricane had had. And I was taken to a refugee camp, not a war refugee camp, right, but a hurricane refugee camp that was now a year after the hurricane had become this like this city. It was meant to be temporary, but now there were thousands of people. It was in an old gymnasium outside of Tegucigalpa, and I took photographs and interviewed people, and I began as the way of the fiction writer piecing you know different kinds of elements together to think of my character as having been a little boy in this displaced area. So that's his background as a little boy, and Hanks is um, as a de- in the deportation center with his family before his rescue as a little boy, and how these characters meet up because it's Julio that's accused of the crime, and that's the inciting action. What is the status of Julio? Is he here on a green card? He's here legally, correct? He arrived in this country legally through what is known as an HB2 visa. He was brought here to work at a coastal resort as one of the huge numbers of seasonal employees, and he's this is renewed. And then uh, he first is actually in South Carolina and on the coast of Georgia, and then he is uh, has the opportunity to do a stint of work down on the Gulf Coast on Mobile Bay. But he overstays his papers, and I think— that's not unlike uh, the experience of people who don't come walking across the Rio Grande, who don't come in, um, you know, through, you know, uh, who who don't present themselves for asylum at the border, uh, who don't, um, you know, who come in through some kind of a process and then sort of go into the shadows, right? Who Who overstay the paperwork and then... He falls between the cracks, as I have it in this story. He, nobody says anything to him about it. He keeps on. He keeps a low profile. His sister, who came also in a similar way but is working towards a green card, is employed by uh, actually Hank's family, and that's how the connection is to help take care of uh, their, their little boy. Hank's grandson uh, worked in the field of bilingual education and came into New Orleans uh, in the aftermath of Katrina, when so many Central Americans, so many Hondurans came in, and many who were there were given temporary protective status for years because of the devastation to their country. So these are technicalities, and this is not a, um, a, a, a um, an immigration law novel, but I made sure that as best I could to make it accurate. Okay, as as we uh, get that, you mentioned his his sister, who is— uh, a key player in this, Lupita, who cares for Hank's grandson. I think we need yeah. to introduce Roger into the story of the grandson because he's a special child. He is. He is. Roger is a special needs little boy. He's four. And um, when his mother, Vanessa— This is—Vanessa <laughs> is one of the most disliked protagonists that I've ever had to deal with. <laughs> I haven't right, gotten right. much sympathy for this woman at all. Right, right. right. I, I'll, I'll let you carry on. I just want to let you know that having read it, and of course, one of the reasons that Roger is a special child is because she had an alcohol problem and she drank heavily throughout her pregnancy. Well, she says that's not why her ex-husband uh, you know, has accused her of that. I mean, that's its own storyline. You know, what's interesting about this novel, Walter, is that I have had readers frame the story through the different characters. So I know a couple of young women professionals in that age group who were able to read this novel and said that as much as they disliked Vanessa, as much as they were impatient, as much as they were angry because she nearly abandons him in the course of the novel, you know, but that's part of the storyline, um, uh, but that— She's somebody with her um, with her privileges and her education, Vassar, NYU Law, 
you know, working for uh, in, uh, in, 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 in business law, working in banking law and, and, and so on, you know, struggles with demons of her own that seem um, precious and perhaps avoidable, but fueled yet by her alcohol. But I, I tried to and hoped that at some point, you know, as I'd follow her in her journey, that the reader could feel some sympathy for what she was going through as she begins to write her story at a certain point while in a, um, a, a writing therapy while in jail. But I appreciate that. You know, yes, there are people who, who, who don't like her at all. And Hank, who just wanted to relax and throw his net and mourn his wife, is suddenly back in the courtroom. He's back having to parent uh, um, a child who's a, an adult woman, uh, be a granddaddy who is there for his special needs grandson, and at the same time, you know, sort of push through and, um, and sort of pull it all together, you know? And, and there's one more character we need to introduce that I was very fond of, and that's Pastor Blue. Oh, (laughs) well, Pastor Blue is one of the uh, characters who is a regular on Fairhope Pier. His uh, son was lost in a plane crash on a mission trip by his church in uh, Africa. Uh, And um, another man survived it, though, but his son was never found. And the others in the small Piper Cub that went out uh, up in the uh, jungle and in the mountains, everyone else was found. So his son is never found, and he's convinced that somehow or another the man that survived, who ultimately is <laughs> ties into because he's like the victim of the crime, uh, knew what happened to his son and perhaps had abandoned his son, whose body was not found, and is convinced that He's still out there somewhere. And if Hank becomes like the peer or the Fairhope peer lawyer, well, Blue becomes the kind of pastor of the peer because after losing his son or the disappearance of his son, he then lost his church. He lost his pulpit. And now he also wants to just commune with the others on the peer. But also being a man of God and of the cloth is somebody that they turn to. So you see, Walter— um, as I'm 68 years old, and in a lot, a lot of my literary journey since I've been 18 or 19 has been, without my realizing it, but now looking back, uh, a way of believing and seeing that people of all kinds of walks and all kinds of backgrounds weave through each other's lives over the course of their years. And uh, I believe that, and it's a kind of a literature that I'm interested in writing. It's a kind of a novel that I'm interested in writing. So a young Honduran, um, a, a pastor who's grieving, you know, a child, a refugee from the Holocaust in the Netherlands, a young woman who is uh, dealing with alcohol, who is um, uh, herself a highly educated young attorney. Um, the right storyline that pulls them all together it becomes to me the truth of how there are dramatic moments. It might be a crime. It might be a hurricane that, that brings people of all different kinds of backgrounds together. And we all carries our, carry our histories with us. There's a term I've like, which struck me recently, which is the psychology of geography. So you've got people in Fairhope, Alabama, meeting up on the pier, and yet one carries the shadows of Amsterdam, the other of Central America, the other of, uh, of, of the obsession with whatever happened to his son who's in Africa. And where these kinds of walking, you know, global entities, but it all comes to bear on the place that I grew up. And in this case, it was the crime that sort of pushed everybody forward. And uh, by the time there's a trial, everybody is either there or connected or reflecting on it in some kind of way. Well, let's let's start at, you know, we know there's a murder, but how do we get there? Well, the novel is composed of, I don't know, 57 chapters. They're short. And there is a shifting point of view. And the first point of view is Hank waking up at dawn 
waiting on Lupita to arrive to take care of his grandson because his little boy Roger's mother, Vanessa, right, is there in uh, a rehab center because Hank wants to go throw his net on the pier. But she doesn't come that morning. And so he takes Roger with him to the pier. And then while there, something happens to Roger, a crisis, and then Lupita shows up apologizing for being late, saying that she's late because the police came to her house looking for a man who did a killing last night. And then the second chapter begins with Julio's point of view, and you see him at the end of a regular day working for with the grounds crew, walking uh, on a path through the resort golf course. And he hears a man cry for help. And that is this moment where, when we face it, we either choose to go one way or go another. There's nobody else around. It's the end of the day. And he finds the man bleeding, stabbed in the chest on the green of the 17th hole of the golf course. And then he goes to him to help him, whatever he can, and uh, the man collapses and dies right there. And because he's overstayed his papers, because he's now undocumented, because he knows the kind of uh, zero tolerance that was, you know, very much in place at the time. Of the time, and we're talking specifically what was go- it might have been elsewhere, but it was specifically going on in Alabama. In Alabama, uh, and, in Alabama. Okay. Uh, and the Attorney General, of course, of the United States, uh, was um, like Hank, a graduate of University of Alabama Law School. Uh, we were right coming into this period of uh, the separation of uh, of children from uh, their families. Right, who would come into the border, many presenting themselves for asylum. It was a philosophy of deterrence. But to Hank, thinking about when he was a little child and he was separated from his parents, and and that's part of his backstory, and he thinks about um, the connections to Alabama and the sense of, um, you know, who's in charge. And uh, this becomes part of the backstory. And he remembers having been a student at University of Alabama when the first woman of color, Authorine Lucy, was matriculated. And the outrage uh, that uh, people had, that whites had, and that students had. And then he thinks about the way in which the Jews were treated in Amsterdam. And then he begins to wonder if the the Latino newcomers to Alabama being talked about and looked at it in a certain kind of way as to be demonized meant that that there was this there was this tradition, there was this thread of intolerance and of xenophobia that was running, you know, through these cultures into his own home, not only where he was a little boy, but also where he, you know, his adopted state, which which he also loves, and that had been, you know, the salvation for him and his and his family, right? In the terms of a place to land and to go to school and to be nurtured and to grow up and all that. But if it's this kind of, um, um, you know, threat of intolerance and xenophobia that's now catching up this young man. Roy, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with. Roy Hoffman, the author of The Promise of the Pelican, a novel. Roy, I know that Julio and uh, Hank's concern for immigrants, that's clear. But what also is part of this story is Lupita, his housekeeper, is -hmm. the victim of random violence, mob violence in Fairhope, Alabama. Yes. Well, she lives in a little trailer on the outskirts of town, and every now and then, people pelt uh, her tin roof with rocks, and then heavier rocks, and break a window. And uh, when she runs out, you know, one of these, um, you know, hits her hand and, and, and cuts her. Later, 
uh, after the trial, and which has now made her story and her family's story so public, there is a very violent attack on uh, this little place that she lives. So at the same time, by talking about some of the antagonisms that these characters face and their perceptions of, of being confronted as they are, this is a story about grit and about perseverance and about the American dream. Uh, it's about the promise of the pelican. The pelican, uh, through lore, is said to pierce its own breast if um, the, the baby chicks are starving in a dire circumstances for blood to feed the baby chicks. A creature who will do anything to make sure that the little ones, the most vulnerable, are taken care of and are nurtured. I don't think that that's accurate in terms of <laughs> biology, but it pops up in Shakespeare. It certainly pops up in religious uh, symbolism. I mean, there are churches which have, um, you know, pictures of or, or images or sculpt, sculptures of, of uh, pelicans piercing their breasts with their um, little chicks around them. One of the most famous images is that the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts, an English missionary group that was very active during the colonial period, the pelican piercing its breast was their symbol. Wow. Wow. So. Well, I wanted this to be about the intensity and the determination of Lupita and of Julio and of Julio's mother and of Hank, of all of them, to take care of each other to take care of, to nurture the next generation. And it was happening at a time in which, and I was, when the novel was coming out, I was thinking about the pictures out of Ukraine of the mothers with their babies fleeing, you know, to get across the border. Or that um, uh, unforgettable image in Afghanistan after the fall of, of, of Kabul when the uh, Afghan man is holding his little baby up at the American compound for one of the soldiers, you know, to take his child, just like, here, here's my little one, please, you know, I can't be there, but but take, and the soldier reaching down. And um, and I think one of the, the, the angering um, aspects of, of uh, Vanessa in the course of this is that somehow she seems uh, immune to that or dismissive of it for her own little boy and has to come to terms with that in the course of her own journey. So, um, so yes, you know, uh, these were people fleeing tougher circumstances who then have to deal with the opposition where they are and, um, and the difficulties in, in that way, you know? I want to talk briefly now about the murder victim. Um, okay. Because he's, he's the subject of the local men's coffee clatch, another meeting mm-hmm. place that's very common, you know, semi-retired men get together right. uh, and have <laughs> right. their, their morning coffee and yes. gossip. That's basically what they do. And this guy is not exactly beloved of the community. There's, he's, a big, he's a big deal. But a big deal. after he's dead, I think you have somebody talk about the funeral and the comment is, he lived a sinner but died a saint, uh, right. which reminded me of something my father would say about going to funerals in Mobile. Said, <laughs> say, if, if, this, if this man woke up in his grave after hearing that description, you say, oh, I'm in the wrong place. <laughs> so, well, I, I really struggled you know, a little bit uh, as the writer. You know, just, just yeah. describe him because I, he is a very identifiable community mm-hmm. character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, uh, elected official uh, in a you know at a county and and or state level, a uh, businessman, stalwart in the community, has wrestled with his own drinking. There, the conversations about his uh, wanting to become more powerful in the church, where uh, Pastor Blue had been the pastor, and Bo Shepherd is his name. A golfer, of course, and also gets into the whole sort of lore, which <laughs> I haven't golfed in years, but I have a lot of friends who do, you know, of drinking and gambling, right? He gambles, you know, on the golf course. So when Julio finds him, not only is he bleeding and reeking of booze, but he's also got all this cash spilling from his pocket. So, you know, that's the kind of uh, 
a sort of other part of the sort of Southern golf experiences. And, and 17th green, and he's had a really good day. He's had a really good day, yeah, yeah. And uh, so, you know, the way that you research as a novelist is very different from that as a journalist, um, although, you know, I've worked as a journalist for many years as well, and that you don't necessarily go out and say, hi, I'm here to talk to you about uh, you know, uh, drinking, uh, you know, in the clubhouse and how much you can, how much you can have drunk and still play golf or how much money is actually betted. But what you do is at parties, <laughs> uh, you, you chat with folks and you begin hearing their stories and you say, oh, I'm working on this story. And, you know, how much, how much is going on? And it's not like on the record, off the record, you, because you're, you're you're beginning to get a sense of the culture that's there, and every single enterprise has its little culture. Whether it's the faculty and in, in, in the history department, right at University of South Carolina, or the uh, the reporters at 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 the newspaper in Mobile, or or the novelists who sit around and and talk at the bookstore, you know, uh, and have a drink and so on. So it was just part of a little bit of the backstory and the back culture. And uh, a bow Shepherd was very much part of that. And in all honesty, Walter, you know, I, I just made his name up, and then I began to realize that. And then there's conversation later about Bo or the Shepherd, the Good Shepherd, uh, you know, with some of the religious imagery that comes through. I, I didn't try to push religious imagery in the book, but also having covered religion as a journalist for some years, maybe some of it comes through because faith is important. And there, there's something I'd like to bring up that you haven't touched on yet because it comes up often when I give talks now and give readings. And that is that how can I, a 60-something-year-old white Jewish male from Alabama, presume to inhabit the character of a young Honduran, uh, you know, of a different background and language and education and so on and so forth? And I think that the answer to this and it's true of all the characters. It'd be true of Bo Shepard as well, the, the, the victim, right? Because I'm, that's not me. But that you find some place, some purchase, some purchase point, some place that you can identify with or connect with your character. And for Julio, it was the young man who was yearning for home, who sends his money back to his mother, right? And I've certainly done newspaper articles because I've, you know, about the local— uh, a Latino store where lined up with people sending those remittances back to help care for their families. I mean, so I, I knew that was the case. But um, but when he's awaiting his trial and he's in jail and uh, his disinterest in religion or his cynicism about it from his mother's pious Catholicism uh, that, that he grew up in, uh, suddenly becomes a different kind of religious journey for him because of the fervor of some of the of the prayer groups, right, of the men that, that he meets and that he starts going to. So that's a way that I could begin to kind of get into the character of him. Not only that I was on that hillside where his family was washed away because that happened in Hurricane Mitch and in hurricanes. It wasn't flooding for them. It was that they were, you know, on a, on a, in, in, that, in that mountain ranges of Honduras working as probably subsistence farmers and the sides just were washed away, you know, down the mountains and such. But also I began to kind of sense of what his religious journey was. So for Bo Shepard, it was maybe all the people that I've met, like you say, you know, stalwart members of the community who somehow or another become lionized uh, as time goes on. Uh, but I never offer his point of view. But I'm very sensitive to try to be to the stories of victims. There was a period when I worked at the newspaper and I wrote all kinds of things where I had to fill in covering trials. And I remember then doing a feature on the uh, representatives from the DA's office who work with victims' families. And um, one of my beefs with crime writing as a genre is that it becomes a little bit like, what puzzle can you come up with now? But if and when I ever write another novel that has a crime in it, and I might, well, I continue to want to be sensitive to the fact that if you are involved in a crime, if you're the victim of a crime, if you are related to somebody who commits a crime, I mean, it, 
it, it's huge emotional experience. Or, or for the family of, um, of um, the person accused of the crime uh, who, who are devastated by it. And, and Hank is a criminal defense attorney over the years has been deeply interested in the human dimension, not only of the defendants, but also of the people related to those defendants, because everybody's swept up into that maelstrom. And that's something that I believe, and I never want to become uh, uh, insensitive to that. And um, I, I, I knew how the trial ended, and I kind of, but I wasn't quite sure what happened after that, because this is not Grisham by any means. This is not a trial novel. Uh, it's a story about the characters. Um, as a matter of fact, Fry Gilliard, uh, the wonderful uh, writer from our area who you, who you know with a wonderful national reputation, said something like it was character-driven suspense. And that's really what I was after, this character-driven suspense. So I want the reader to like what's going to happen in terms of you know who committed the murder. I'm not going to tell you who did or didn't or if I even say – because that becomes a great conversation for you know readers and book clubs and such. But I want you to sort of keep reading because in part you want to know what happens to these people, what happens you know to Hank? Does he make it through? What happens to Julio? What happens to the little boy Roger? What happens to Lupita and so on? Um, I'm very much interested in character and and plot that comes from character. Right? I can't tell you. Remember the details of of Death of a Salesman, but Willie Loman looms large. And I can't even remember all the details of To Kill a Mockingbird, but certainly Atticus and Scout, you know, loom large. So I'm after characters and the stories that come because we all make decisions, we all make choices. One person hears the crime on the golf course, goes for help. One person walks across the golf course, puts his arm around the person who's bleeding to death and, to tr- and tries to help him. One old lawyer says, I'm out of it. I can't come back and, you know, try to go back to trial again. I will, and, of course, Hank does debate that, you know. And another ends up thinking about this poor guy and what he's up against and how all the forces are aligned against him, thinks about his own childhood and says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back one more time into the courtroom. So those are – that's how you create characters. You know, it's the choices that we make. And, and, Roy, and, um, and Roy, you have done that very, very successfully. And I hate to tell you, Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign, which means we're going to need to sign off shortly. And so I'd like any last words from you before we do sign off. Yes. Is there a large theme to this? Is there something that's a takeaway? Uh, Yes. I don't want it to be underscored in the plot, and yet I want it to come through. Um, I want people to pause and look at and to consider the other people who are different from them, like Hank goes and talks to middle school kids about what he experienced as a little boy in the Holocaust for, for Holocaust Remembrance Day, is that, you know, not to be quick to judge people because they look different, act different, love different, uh, you know, speak different. Uh, these may sound like, um, you know, old tried and true kinds of talking points for certain kinds of, you know, political viewpoints and so on, but it's as human and it's basic. And, uh, you know, I try to have friends and conversations with people of all different backgrounds and to try to meet in the middle. We may not agree, but we're in dialogue. And so, you know, it's the, it's the rush to judgment. It's the, um, it's the uh, demonization. It is the, um, uh, you know, stereotyping of people of different backgrounds that, that, that we're so wrought up with in, in, at this time and in, in our country and in our culture uh, and how those connections break down. And this is a novel which ultimately people are working through that as well to connect and to come away with a little bit understanding of people who, who are the other. Uh, you know, the great poles in, of, in, in the Deep South, certainly in my state, are welcoming people in, right? Hey, come on in, sit for a spell. And xenophobia, get the heck off my lawn, you know, who are you, you so-and-so? And it's that push-pull. And uh, you know which way we need to go. We all know which way we went to go. We have to do it and give it more than just lip service. Well, Roy, that's very powerful. 
And I think on that note, we will sign off. And I want to thank Roy Hoffman for being with us from Soundworks Studio in Mobile, Alabama. And uh, Roy, it's always a pleasure. Maybe at some point I will get back to Sweet Lunacy's county seat and you and I can have a conversation. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. Roy Hoffman is a longtime friend, a very successful and, I think, interesting writer about the American South. While this story was set in Alabama, there are connections with the history of South Carolina in terms of similarities, whether it's community or personalities. And I think as we read about our region, we all learn that we have a shared history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio. Thank you.